Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have written 36 cookbooks, hard to believe it, and still married. Can you fathom <laughs> that? I Inc- can. I can, I guess. Including <laughs> Excuse our, me? Well, I don't know. I mean, good grief. Working together, living together. We've been watching too much together. of couples therapy on oh, Showtime. Gosh, that is how well <laughs> that you can go down with us. Couples therapy, it's real. It's actual couples in couples therapy. Oh, my gosh. It's horrific and fascinating on Showtime. Anyway, we're not advertising for Showtime. Instead, this and is we're our not doing therapy today. podcast about food and cooking. We are going to talk about bubbly wine of all kinds of the different kinds there are. We've got our one-minute cooking tip. As always, we have an interview, a fabulous interview with somebody who seems to be everywhere right mm-hmm. now with Kate Reed, the owner of Lune Croissanterie in Australia. Uh, Bruce has snagged an interview with her, and that is quite an amazing thing. And we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. Not all bubbles are created equal. And you know, if you listen to this podcast, that Mark and I love to drink bubbles. It is our favorite form of wine. that if I could choose one kind of wine and leave it there, and I only could have one, it would be bubbly wine. And it's really funny because I am such a red wine drinker, and yet I would go for bubbles as my only choice if I could. Well, there are some bubbly red wines. I mean, there are the Italian Lambrusco. Most of them give me a headache and make me kind of queasy, but I'm sure that there's some really good ones out there. Lambrusco's out there, and I'm Not at our local pizza place. No, no, and not that (laughs) crud you ordered have those four bottles that we kind of had to finally give away to people. Um, <laughs> not that. I'm sure there's great Lambrusco out there. In fact, if you know a great Lambrusco, drop us a note and tell us some fabulous Lambrusco that you absolutely love. I've had some red champagnes from California, champagnes, red bubbling wines from California. They're Okay, I wouldn't go crazy about it. Did they come in a can? No, they should have, <laughs> because that's about what they taste like. They're okay. I wouldn't go crazy about it. But we want to talk about the different kinds of bubbles, and we want to start off with champagne or champagne, because there, there's something you should know about champagne if you don't know, and that is to be champagne, you have to be from the region of Champagne. Yeah, well, that makes sense. That's you. why they call it that. That means if you live there, you're Champagne. No, the, <laughs> the wine has to come from the region of Champagne. So here's how they make the Champagne from Champagne, right? They start with wine, actually. They do a, a first fermentation of wine. They take Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Meunier grapes. Those are the three most common. Yes, there are some small Champagne producers that use different grapes, but are. those are basically the three. And they get fermented a single ferment. I think a lot of people are surprised. Wait, I'm going to interject and say a lot of people are surprised that so much champagne is made out of Pinot Noir, which is a red grape, Pinot Dark, Pinot Black, Pinot Dark. And uh, that's because the skins don't rest in the wine. No, they don't. You can get... You can get white wine from red grapes. You can. You cannot get red wine from white grapes. Correct. Nobody can Without food coloring. Or blood. Oh, God. Okay, go on. (laughs) So they do an initial first fermentation in vats. Then they put this wine into bottles, and they add more yeast and a little sugar 
for a second fermentation, mm-hmm. right? And that fermentation makes the bubbles. But it's very complicated process, isn't it? It is. It's very complicated. It involves storing the bottles upside down. It involves a process called riddling. It it is all about getting the yeast to resettle back in the neck to get it to blow out after fermentation to recork the bottle. They add a little wine and then recork the bottle. It, champagne is a really labor intensive process to produce the product. There's a reason why it costs as much as it does. Yeah. Not just because it's you know fancy and people think it's fancy. I, I, I'm going to tell a story. Um, about from us we, early on in our food career, we were French correspondents for Wine Spectator. Believe nice it or job. not, <laughs> it was a really great job back in the day when you had expense accounts, like serious expense accounts for feature articles in magazines. So we did not, we were not allowed to write about wine because, of course, we were not wine experts the way, let's say, James Suckling was, who wrote, wrote and worked at Wine Spectator. We weren't on that level, but we were allowed to write about luxury travel and food. Experiences. It was a tough job. Yeah, really tough job. Unbelievably tough. And one of the things we did is we went to Champagne and we spent time there. And it was, I'm. this is really silly. I was writing for Wine Spectator. We had published a couple cookbooks and it was about, oh, I don't know, two nights in, maybe three nights in to our stay in Champagne that we were having these dinners with champagne with every course. And I looked up at Bruce with this shocked look on my face as I was eating, I think, I don't know, a piece of beef with a glass of champagne. And I I said to him, oh, my gosh, champagne is wine. And (laughs) what I meant by that is you can drink it with dinner. It was was this shocking thing because I only knew champagne. Really, honestly, I'm going to be really honest about myself. Before I got fancy in my food career, the way I handled all relationship breakups in my life was a bottle of New York State Taylor sparkling wine and a bath. And notice he didn't call it champagne because it came from New York State. It's true. And so Taylor, New York State, stop. Just stop. It's what I could do. I was an assistant professor of American Lit. It's what I could afford. So I would get my bottle of Taylor sparkling wine, New York State. I would make a big bath and I would... What ease away my pain How of a breakup? How sweet was that champagne? Oh, it's not that bad. Okay, because the way champagne I mean, gets its sweetness is, as Mark said, they disgorge all that yeast from the bottle, and before they recap it, they put what they call a dosage, which is a little bit of sugar water in. Depending upon how much and how high the dosage is will depend on how dry the champagne is. And you can actually get some super dry champagnes that have zero dosage. You can. I and love them. So let's move on and talk about another kind of sparkling wine that is not champagne, right? You have to be from champagne to be champagne. But let's talk about Prosecco. And I have to say that Prosecco, I think, gets a bad rap. And I will tell you right up front before we say this discussion, it gets a bad rap from me quite often. <laughs> so I am not, Mark of the pair here, a grand fan of a lot of Prosecco. Well, it doesn't have the subtlety. It doesn't have the individuality that most champagnes have. And the reason is because Prosecco, again, it starts with a base wine that's fermented in a tank just like champagne but then things change they have to do a second fermentation to get the bubbles right and to get it sparkling but instead of doing that in individual bottles with yeast added to that bottle they dump all that wine into a giant tank with yeast they seal it pressure builds that carbonates the wine and it's much faster you could take six weeks to get a super bubbly prosecco 
in the same time, it could take up to nine and years I, for a bottle of champagne. And, now, I'm going to say something that's really uh, – please don't leave our podcast when I say something that <laughs> is this snotty and nasty. But I'm being very serious. The bubbles in champagne, in champagne, are infinitely more sophisticated than the bottle bubbles in most Prosecco. And what I mean by that is they're smaller. There are more of them. They rise on a more continuous basis in a, from a glass of champagne. All of this says to me that the carbonation is much more elegant. And, I, you know, God, you're going to turn our podcast off right now because that's the <laughs> snottiest thing I said. And I, will admit, I will admit it's is, terribly snotty. The carbonation is more elegant. And there's a reason why like Prosecco is used in things like an Aperol spritz, right? right? But it's you would, perfect in an Aperol spritz. But the the most you would do in France or champagne is put like a drop of creme de cassis to make oh, a Kia Royale. Oh, my God. And even that, to me, is just horrifying. <laughs> I can't deal with that. But there's something that you can say about Prosecco that's actually for the business end of it that's quite yeah. nice, and that is every single bottle from every single giant vat batch of Prosecco will be the same. Yes, that's true. That does not happen with champagne. Nope, it doesn't. For every batch of first fermented wine that goes into the bottles with the extra yeast, every single bottle from that year is going to be slightly different. And I have to say this, since I've dissed Prosecco, and I don't mean to diss it, since I've dissed it, I have to say that we bought some Prosecco, we bought a case of Prosecco a, a while ago. We still have about half of the case here at our house. And I have to say that we went up, and when I tell you up in the cost of our Prosecco, we went to like $13 a bottle and $12 a bottle. So not, I'm not speaking of $30 a bottle. We went just slightly up, and I have to say that Prosecco is better it is. than and a lot of the Prosecco that I've had. Well, Prosecco is much cheaper because it's so much easier to make. It's mass-produced as opposed to the labor-intensive champagne. Now, when you go to Spain and you look at their wine, Cava, you're going to look at prices that are a little higher again. Yeah, we can I, before we get to Cava, can I say, we, yes, I, and I love Cava, and I want to talk about Cava, but can I say something about Prosecco and Champagne, one more thing? Sure. And uh, that I, you bring this up, and I think this is really what I was trying to get at, and I think you were kind of implicitly getting at it, too, is that, that is, if you go up in price with Prosecco, you get a better product. Yep. You don't necessarily get a better product in Champagne because you because there are differentiations amongst the very bottles themselves. That's one problem. But two, in Champagne, you run into brands. You do. You do run into the upcharge for Veuve Clicquot or the upcharge for Moet. Like the upcharge for Tito's vodka. And that doesn't mean you're getting a better vodka. Right, exactly. And, <laughs> By any stretch and of the imagination. so you're running into upcharge with champagne mm -hmm. based on brand yep. no you know brand recognizability what is brand knownness mm -hmm. is that a word knownness sure. so in prosecco if you bump up your game as we did just slightly you're almost guaranteed to yeah. get a better product in true. champagne you might bump up your price point and what you're guaranteed to get is a more well-known brand not necessarily a better bottle of champagne although sometimes you do sometimes you do and in fact if you go to a small wine store with a very curated stock of champagne you are likely to find some grower champagnes and unknown champagnes right. that 
aren't more expensive because right. they want to make inroads. They want people to know who they are, and you might get them at a really good price. Yeah, so w- when you're looking at champagne and you're looking – because generally when you're looking at real champagne, you're looking at spending some bucks. Just remember, don't be seduced by the brands. There are lots of small micro-producers of champagne. Right. There more and more of it is imported into North America, yep. and there are ways to get better champagne without paying you know, the Louis Vuitton, Mar- right. as it were, the brand markup. Okay, so now on to Cabo, which – I'm going to tell you, I am an unabashed fan of kava. And part of why Mark and I love kava so much is that it has the subtlety and the sophistication of champagne because it's made in the very same way. So we're talking about Spanish sparkling yep. wine, kava. It's made just like champagne is. The wine is made in vats and then has a secondary fermentation in the bottle with yeast and sugar. They do the riddling, just the way Mark described it, to get the yeast down to the cork. They disgorge all that. They add a little dosage, and then they finally fill the bottle with a little bit extra wine and cap it. And this is why kava can have the same toasty brioche quality like champagne. And, and I got a second thing. And yep. Champagne, the region, the region in France, is wet. It's it's getting less wet, but it's notoriously a wet region of France. In Spain, the grapes do have to suffer more. <laughs> Spain is, you know, uh, one of the northernmost outposts of the Saharan microclimate, and so the grapes do have to suffer more in Spain. I think they add an incredible complex. I like my grapes to suffer. I think they add an incredible complexity to cava. It's not the same grapes used. It, it really doesn't matter the varietals of the grapes, but it's not the same grapes used. Well, that infects the flavor tremendously. It, it too. is, but but also just the environment, mm-hmm. just the dryness of Spain, it, the 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 lime quality of the the lime content of the soil, the basic versus acidic nature of the soil. I mean, all of this stuff is part of what makes kava really interesting and a really great choice. And the other thing about kava that I love so much is it's not very expensive. No, because people want champagne for that thing. It's, oh, champagne is the thing. thing It's the brand thing. And people who don't know kava don't know that, like, for champagne, you've got to go up to 50, 60 bucks to get a decent bottle of champagne. Often. Often at kava, we have found that $30 is the top of what you need yeah, to spend to get a spectacular really kava. expensive. And you can get kavas down at 12 and $13 that are kind of mind-boggling. And remember, those are all still done with that hand-labor-intensive way champagne does. Now, there's a fourth sparkling wine that Mark and I have fallen in love with. We have talked about pet gnats on this podcast endlessly. Petit long naturel yes. pet it, gnat. Pet gnat. It is the oldest method of making sparkling wine, also known as méthode ancestrale. The wine is moved from the vats where it has its initial fermentation into bottles while it is still fermenting. So they don't add any extra yeast. They just transfer it in with a bit of cloudy yeast that's already still in there. They seal it with a crown cap like you get on soda pop bottles. (laughs) Like a bottle of Coke. It's not filtered. There's no dosage added, so they're usually very dry. And they can be a little cloudy. But the they wa- are often cloudy. Yeah. And because the pet nat wine only undergoes that primary fermentation and it never get a secondary by adding more yeast to it, they're much lower in alcohol 
and the bubbles are usually much finer. Now, I want to tell you something about this, and it's something that's kind of fascinating. So I'm old, and the first time I went to Paris, I will tell you, was in I was uh, in college, and it was a summer trip, and I went to Paris. It's late 70s, 1970s. I'm staying in a flop house hotel, and I mean flop house, in which the shower, it costs, we're this pre-Euros. The, the shower is one franc to take a shower, and the shower is a hose on a fire escape. What are you, James so, Beard? He used to do that in his townhouse well, in New York. Seriously. So <laughs> I, I gave the guy my franc, and he like gave me the key, and I opened the door, and it's just the fire escape in the interior of the building with a hose hanging off it. I'm like, oh, thanks. So anyway, I'm staying in a flop yeah, house. Yeah, you pay for it. Exactly. And we drank a lot of Petnat. We had no money. We drank a lot of Petnat. There was a wine bar just around the corner from this Flophouse Hotel I was staying in. We it was it was on the bottom basement floor. We would go down there. We being idiots in college, idiot boys traveling around Europe. Of course, we called it champagne. It was not champagne. It was pet mat. And I now know that in, in retrospect. Right. They came over, and I couldn't believe it. I, I was a rube. But still, you know, she brought over the bottle opener and opened it. And I was like, what? What are you doing? And, but it was so cheap. It was just dirt cheap to drink pet mat because it was a, a definitely low-quality wine. Now, oh. this is what's so funny. Yeah. The kids, me Meaning the the uh, the younger millennials and Gen Z have gone insane over pet nats, and pet nats are now expensive. It just blows my mind. They're now expensive. It's hard to find a decent pet nat under twenty five dollars. It, it's crazy. They, it used to be the rot gut stuff, but they are so delicious. And the thing is, they they are made everywhere. They're made in Germany. They're made in Italy. They're made yep. in France. They're yep. made in Spain. We were having dinner in Boston one night with some very dear friends of ours. And we had actually gone to Boston for a weekend just to eat and drink. And the first... (laughs) The best reason to go to Boston. No, wait, there was a third reason. Eat, drink, and... Be merry? No, and look at great art. Oh, yes. Look at great... We spent so much time in the art museums in Boston. And we bought... and we ordered a bottle of an Italian pet nat to start dinner. And it was so delicious that by the time the first course came, I had already been on my phone and ordered a case of this to be delivered when we got back <laughs> yeah. home. He found a case in California, yep. and he bought it at the table as we were drinking it. So, But but I will say, pet nat has become very popular. It's become very up. If you go to any kind of hip restaurants these days uh, that are frequented by the 20- and 30-year-old Crowd, you're going to see a lot of pet nats, and you're going to pay for them. Uh, Kava's going to still be a better bargain all around. I know this thing that used to not be the the fancy thing has now become the th- uh, the fancy thing. But if you can find pet nats, check in your local stores. They are well worth the effort to find. They are not as refined as champagne or cava, but they are an interesting summer drink. Okay, that's as much as we want to say about sparkling wine. Let me say for right, now. For, uh, for now. Let me say right now that if you don't know it, we have a newsletter. Uh, it comes out oh, about every other week, sometimes once a week, sometimes every other week. Uh, if you want to be a part of our newsletter, it includes uh, sometimes knitting patterns from Bruce. Uh, the latest one included my current lunch obsession, a recipe for it, which is this way you make ramen eggs, and that's uh, my whole thing right now. Um, if you want to see that newsletter, 
newsletter and be a part of it, you can go to our website, bruceandmark.com. There's a sign-up form there for the newsletter. And let me say up front, we guarantee you will never have your email sold or used for any other purposes for, than our own. We lock them on the mail service we use so they cannot be gleaned in any way. So if you're interested in that newsletter, go to bruceandmark.com and you can sign up for it. Okay, up next, as is standard, our one-minute cooking tip. If you have a recipe that says you have to peel tomatoes or peel peaches, you have probably been taught how to do it by scoring them and dropping them in boiling water. Oh and then God, the if you're very off. fancy, you're very fancy suddenly. Okay, you don't need to do any of that. Skip the boiling water. Buy yourself a serrated vegetable peeler. Uh, That's it. It's uh, like the it's like the simplest thing. It's, it's something I didn't even know existed until a few years ago, and I was buying some new tools from OXO, and they had this serrated vegetable peeler. It takes the skins off soft ripe peaches and soft ripe tomatoes without boiling. It's fabulous. I have to tell you that uh, I didn't even know people were offended by peach skins until I was an adult. Because Ooh, we just for fuzzy. Well, and, we just ew. ate them. Come on, my grandparents grew peaches. Oh, to eat a peach, yes, but not to cook with. Oh, no. My grandmother just cut the peaches up for peach pie. Skins and all. Come on. No, no, there's no fat involved. And I didn't know people, like, freaked out about tomato skins either until I became an adult. But, okay, so they do. So if you need to take off ripe pear, (laughs) peach, or tomato skins, look for serrated vegetable peelers. They will do the trick. Before our interview segment, let me say that if you would be so kind as to subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, drop a comment on whatever platform you're on, no matter what country you're in, we see the downloads in Canada, we see the downloads in Australia. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast from other places besides the United States. We hope that we offer enough beyond just the U.S. food scene that we can actually make friends across the globe. Thanks for dropping comments there, and thanks for being on the journey with us. Okay, now the big interview. I feel like that we need a drum roll for the big interview. This is Kate Reed, the owner of Lune Croissanterie. Her croissants have been rated the best croissants in the world. In the world, yep. By the New York Times, and she is the author of the new croissant and laminated dough cookbook, Lune. L-U-N-E, that seems to be absolutely everywhere right now. Great get for our podcast to have Kate read on. Can't wait to hear the interview. Good morning. Hey, Kate. Man, your book is beautiful. I am thrilled that you're on this big U.S. tour for it. Look, it's really exciting to take, like, essentially Loon on the road. I mean, we're very well known in Australia, but I think you you pop out of the borders of Australia and, you know, it's like, oh, what's Loon? So it's it's nice to be able to come and talk about it and also that people are interested and want to hear about it. So very exciting to be here with the book. Any chances of expanding Loon outside of the Australian borders? <gasps> I love that you've just hit me with the big question first. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would absolutely love to. We've got a bit of a, I guess we'd call it a two-year plan now, looking forward to 2025. We're opening our first really big store in Sydney this year which we've been working towards for a number of years now. And it was obviously slowed down by the pandemic, but very excited that we're going to have presence in Sydney. Um, We're definitely looking abroad. And I mean, I'm looking out over the view of incredible Manhattan right now, and it's hard not to be inspired and, and dream of having a loon 
on U.S. soil for sure. Well, I know there are very few really good croissants in Manhattan, so I know it would be welcome. I actually just had a really good one this morning. There's there's certainly a few good croissants popping up, but honestly, there's nothing like a loon croissant. There are variations with croissants all over the world, but I still haven't eaten one that's quite like a loon croissant. So I can see it fitting in in Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get into that. Uh, but today I'm so excited because I'm here talking with Kate Reed. She's the culinary master brains behind Loon Croissanterie. That's Loon, L-U-N-E. Although she's based in Australia, even the New York Times has called them the best croissants in the world. And now she's also the author of one of the most beautiful cookbooks I have ever seen, also called Loon. And in it, she offers up the exacting task of making the most perfect croissants at home, and then also how to turn that croissant dough into dozens of other amazing pastries, both sweet and savory. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. So being heralded as the best croissant maker in the world makes us think, hey, you must have been doing this your whole life to be this good at it. But that's not true, is it? No, uh, croissants are probably my second big career. I started off my professional life as an engineer. So what did the journey look like from engineering to croissants? Well, if we take it right back, um, I have a really close relationship with my dad. And growing up as a little kid, we bonded over watching Formula One together. And it was, you know, it was a treat every second Sunday night. We'd make tea and toast and sit in the middle of the night watching this incredibly exciting sport that that travelled around the world. And eventually uh, Melbourne got the Australian Grand Prix in 1996 And so dad bought me a ticket. It was the first time I'd ever witnessed the cars in person. It was a cloudy, muggy Melbourne day and we arrived at the track and the F1 cars had just come out to practice and they had that distinctive squeal of the V10 engine. And I was like, oh my God, what's that? (laughs) And then we rounded a hill and I saw this thing flash past me and, you know, it was going so quickly that you couldn't even lock eyes on it. And I just knew in that instant that I had to be a part of that world. So From the age of about 14 or 15, totally laser focused on a career in Formula One. And that led me to focusing on maths and science subjects at school and then studying aerospace engineering at university. And yeah, a year out of university being offered a job with the Williams F1 team as an aerodynamicist. And I thought that day to day in the office, it would be exciting and inspiring and motivating. And um, there'd be a lot of talking and working together, but the reality of working in an F1 office is very different to that, especially if you're not working in the team that's winning that season. (laughs) First of all, you work incredibly long hours. A lot of conversation in the office was discouraged. So it was a very quiet working space. You'd sit in front of your computer for 16 or 18 hours a day. We were being paid absolute pittance, but if you're not happy with the hours and the money that you're making Every week, 3,000 resumes land on the desk, so you're very disposable. So working in Formula One led to me developing depression, and then uh, that turned into an eating disorder. It wasn't like I had body image issues. Um, It was far more to do with control. sort of found myself in a position where I wasn't in the career that I wanted to be in, and I'm very close to my family, and I was living over in the UK away from them, so... I went back to Australia, a very sick girl, and started the pretty long recovery in an eating disorder. But 
The ironic flip side of an eating disorder is all you can think about all day is eating because Mm -hmm. your body is starving and it keeps sending signals to your brain to remind you that you should be putting fuel in your body. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we're hungry, none of us think about a lettuce leaf or spinach. You know, you go to the thing that like you're craving the most. I started dreaming about baked goods and I got a job at a local bakery just working on the counter selling the products And I absolutely adored it. But the one thing that I found difficult was that I was just sad that I wasn't making the things that we were selling. So that was enough of an indication to me that it was a career worth pursuing. So I got a job in a local cafe doing their morning baking and it was very simple things. I was loving it, but over time I needed something a little bit more technical and challenging just to, you know, I think for someone who'd studied aerospace engineering, (laughs) I like something that's pretty difficult and technical. And I'd started to research French pastry because I think of, of all the, the cuisine cultures, French pastry is by far the most technical and it's very challenging. So I bought myself this book about Paris patisseries. It featured maybe 10 or 15 of Paris's most famous boulangeries and patisseries. And then it had a recipe from each of them that was one of their iconic products. And I randomly opened up the book to a double page photo of pain au chocolat. And, you know, it was a photo from a counter in a boulangerie and they were all just perfectly stacked. And the photo was really zoomed in. So you could see every like macro detail, every perfect layer and the little chocolate ends poking out. And I was so mesmerized by, by this hypnotic photo that I closed the book, I walked into town to the nearest travel agent and I booked myself a ticket to Paris. Driven, very driven. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) So I ended up going on this trip to Paris and when I was there, I wanted to visit the boulangerie where the photo had been taken. And I just had this transformative experience visiting this boulangerie where there was this little queue of people just snaking out of the bakery, waiting for their morning croissant and Everyone was just happy being surrounded by this scent of like butter and toasty flour and the anticipation of the product that they were about to buy and have their little moment of joy for the morning. And I got to the front of the counter and in broken French, I tried to explain to the sales assistant that I'd seen a photo of their boulangerie in Australia and it had made me want to book this trip. So she raced out the back and got the owner who did speak English And I explained it to him and he gave me a bunch of pastries for free. And, you know, I took them and I tasted them all. And the next day I couldn't stop thinking about this bakery. It had left a real imprint on me. So I emailed the owner and just thanked him for his generosity. And I just said how inspiring I'd found my visit to the bakery. And on a whim, I said to him, look, I don't suppose you'd ever consider taking me on as an apprentice. And he wrote back to me, within the hour and said, oh, look, normally no, because you don't speak French and we're a very small bakery of only French speaking, you know, Mm. employees. But for some reason, I can see the same passion and motivation in you that is in me. When would you like to start? That was a game-changing moment for me. And I then ended up going back to Paris and I did what's called a stage, working unpaid in a food business that in return for your efforts there, you get to learn the art and the craft of what they specialize in. So I went and did a one month stage and towards the end of that month, 
the cafe that I was working at in Melbourne asked me to return to Melbourne because they were expanding and they needed their full team of pastry chefs on board. And I thought to myself, oh, I've worked for a month making croissants. I know everything there is to know about croissants. And so it also is getting pretty expensive living in Paris earning no money. So I headed back to Melbourne, very inspired by what I'd learned at Dupin and totally in love with the croissant. Like I'd found this product that hit all the, like the positive receptors in my brain in terms of very like long technical process to make it over three days and many different parts of that process that could be honed or improved. Um, And then at the end of it, you get this perfect like very difficult product to make that like to the consumer is so simple and it's like inhaled in five minutes and I think nobody has any real idea how incredibly challenging it is to make that product but when I got back to Melbourne there was just nothing like it I mean there are many good bakeries in Melbourne but at that point in time I became obsessed with visiting bakeries on my days off to try and find a croissant that came anywhere near what I'd experienced in Paris. And I came to the conclusion that at that point in time in Melbourne, all bakeries that had croissants, they were simply a token item on the menu that, you know, well, we own a bakery, a bakery should sell croissants, but no love had gone into the making of them. And they were a bit tasteless and dry and heavy and doughy and not that like light, you know, flaky, buttery cloud of a pastry that I'd experienced in in France. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because with an engineer's mindset, you talk about in the book how you took the perfect croissant, this buttery, flaky croissant from Paris. You reverse engineered it to create your own croissant, and you came up with the loon croissant. My job in France had been to make the croissant dough. And then I begged the head pastry chef to let me roll some of the croissants with him. But until the day where I was standing in Loon for the first time and I'd made this dough and I tipped it out on the bench and I remember looking at it and Bruce, I had no idea what to do next. And there are dozens of processes between making the dough and rolling the plain croissant. And then if you actually get to the point where you've got this raw croissant rolled, There are many processes after that with proving and baking it. And I hadn't even touched on that in the bakery in Paris. Like I'd worked in the raw kitchen, the bakery was downstairs and I'd had nothing to do with that. So I kind of realized I knew about 10% of what I needed to know. But at this point in time, I'd quit my job. I'd spent my life savings setting up a business. And I think I had no choice but to move forward and figure out how to. And I think this is where the engineering mindset comes into play where I imagined what my perfect croissant, like the end product would look like and taste like and feel like texturally everything. And I was like, okay, I'm going to use an engineering mindset to reverse engineer that end product that I'm imagining. And every day I tested and If I didn't get close to the end product, I'd change one variable the next day. And it took me about three months from that first dire day of making the dough and having the realization through to one day pulling croissants out of the oven and thinking, yeah, like, I think I'm pretty close to that, that end product that I wanted. 
in that three months, were you selling these croissants or were these just, did you weren't even open yet? Mom and dad were getting really sick of eating croissants. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there were, there were a fair few people who were putting their hands up saying they were happy to be guinea pigs, but I think it requires a certain level, like, like that Formula One laser focus that like not even being okay with it, but almost getting off on this like repetition of experimentation and just continually trying to work closer and closer towards that end goal. When you create the layers in the dough, you you do this through a process called turns where you roll out your dough and butter and then you fold it and you let it rest and then you turn it 90 degrees and then you roll it out and you fold it again. So that's the process of lamination. And the classic French technique is typically three turns Mm -hmm. with a letter fold. So like if you imagine how you fold a business letter in three, and when I started uh, doing all my testing, I started with the classic French three-letter turns, but I actually landed on different types of turns and in a different format because for me, I wanted slightly thicker layers than normal. And by thicker, we're talking like fractions of a millimeter, yeah. but also the more turns you have, the more you develop the gluten in the flour. So the tougher your croissant becomes. So I wanted less turns than the classic and a slightly thicker layer so that outer shell has a shatter rather than, you know, flaking into a million little pieces. I wanted you to bite in and get a crack and a crunch. So for me, that's one of the ways in which it varies from that classic French croissant. For a lot of chefs who write recipes from restaurants into cookbooks, it's usually just a matter of scaling down amounts or occasionally asking a home cook to search out, you know, an unusual ingredient. But in your case, you offer up a recipe for the home cook to recreate the kind of croissants you make at Loon, but it required an entire reformulation and basically a different recipe in the book than you use in the restaurant. And why is that? To make a good (laughs) croissant, you need commercial bakery equipment. So this machine that we use in every bakery, it's called a laminator. And it's a mechanical piece of equipment where there's two stainless steel rolling pins and the distance between them, you can control it and it gradually becomes less and less. So you gently roll out the dough, which keeps it incredibly even and consistent and it minimizes the development of gluten. The only way we can do that in a home kitchen is using a rolling pin. Mm -hmm. And humans, when they roll out dough, we do it inconsistently and we impart a lot of strength into the dough. So I mean, I tried it when I got back from France 11 years ago, I tried to make croissants at home based on books out of like home baking books and the dough kept springing back. So the reason why the recipe had to be completely changed was people don't have a laminator in their home kitchen and they don't have like a retard approver, which is the piece of equipment we use at Loon to really closely control the temperature and humidity when you're proving a croissant and they don't have blast chillers to like bring the temperature of the dough down rapidly. So there's a lot of limitations in a home kitchen. I need to rewrite this recipe to give the home chef the best opportunity to create a product that will look and eat like a loon croissant, but they can actually achieve it with a rolling pin and a KitchenAid mix-up. So recreating that, doing the engineering for that must have been very exciting for you. That is clearly your passion is in creating something that's so amazing. So let's go back to the loon croissant now. You've been doing this full-time for 10 years. You live and breathe croissants all day, every day. 
aside <laughs> from the book, you're not recreating a new dough and a new process every day. So do you still enjoy what you do? The thing is, on a daily basis, we are recreating the process, which again makes us different from every other bakery. So because the technique that I developed 10 years ago isn't tied to a centuries old technique, because it was this brand new technique, just like in Formula One, where we were constantly evolving the design of the car based on new technology and information that was becoming available and different requirements for different tracks and races, every single day at Loon, every part of our three-day process is up for critical analysis. So one of our pastry chefs might come up to me on any given day and say, hey, this part of the, the creating the layers or this part of the rolling of the croissant or this part of the proving, I have an idea that I think will improve the end product. Mm. And I say to them, test it, change one variable at a time. And if the end result is better than what we're currently doing, then that becomes the new process. So at Loon, the way we make croissants is an ever evolving process. And it, for me, that keeps like the passion and the love of croissants alive. Also, I never get sick of eating a loon croissant. I think I eat like four or five of them a week. And I, I mean, it's my job, it's quality control, but it's an absolute delight to do so. So yeah, I'm never sick of them. Kate Reed, thank you for this beautiful book, Loon, named after your bakery, Loon. It is absolutely stunning. I can't wait to dive in and actually finally try my hand at laminating dough at home. Great, good luck with the book. Enjoy the rest of your tour. And uh, wow. I hope to see you in Australia at your bakery someday. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. It was so nice to chat to you. All right, here's a secret. I have always wanted to laminate dough for croissants, and I never have. I I will tell you that I have written 35 cookbooks, and laminating dough for croissants is beyond my skill set. Maybe I'll buy you a laminator for No, I don't want to do it by hand. I want to do it the old-fashioned way, but I'm intrigued by this way that she's developed yeah. to do it. I'm intrigued by trying it. I, would, I, I mean, I really want to do it because I know that this is just kind of a beating project it's gonna just destroy me three days takes yeah. three days to make it but nonetheless <laughs> i just want to do it's the kind of thing i want to do once and just say i did it and i made this response <laughs> it was great to have kate reed on the podcast it was great and if you don't know her book loon check it out because it is just a it, it's a gorgeous besides this crazy way she developed to laminate dough so you could get a professional quality at home it's also just this gorgeous book oh my god it's it's beautiful so beautiful I'm jealous okay Okay, so the last segment of our podcast, as is traditional, what's making us happy in food this week? Jewish brisket. Ah, uh, that's what I was going to go with. Okay, well, you go with Jewish brisket. And then so, I, uh, well, no, I'm going to say it first. Okay. The Goy here made the Jewish brisket well, yeah, this week. Yeah, I had week. taken this five-pound brisket out of the freezer, and it was a nice point cut, so it had the fat running in the middle of it and had the two layers. The deco was still on it. Right. It's from a local farm from Howling Flats Farm in Canaan. If you're anywhere near that area, look them up. Call Kelly. Get some meat from her. Um, and I had taken it out. And Canaan, my, Connecticut, yeah, by Canaan, the way. Connecticut. And I was planning on making the brisket, and Mark was like, make it Jewish style. Don't smoke it. No, okay. No. So I was going to do that on Monday, and then a dear friend called me on Friday or Saturday and said, would I play bridge with him on Monday afternoon at the local bridge club? 
And I hadn't done that in a long time. So I thought, yeah, that'd be fun. And I said, oh, but Mark, you're okay. going to have to make the Jewish brisket. So, I did. so he did. I did. And I want to tell you something that nobody knows about me, um, really. But I'm going to tell you now. It's this little secret about me. I brown the hell out of everything. You do. I mean, it's wonderful. I honestly, trust you to make if that. in a braise it calls to brown the meat and it says, you know, oh, brown the beef for five minutes turning once, Mark will do it for 12 minutes turning once. I mean, I brown it until I basically put one side of the brisket down in the pot and Walk I away. went away for about 10 minutes and I came back and I had to dig it off the bottom of the pot. But that's where the flavor is. I know. And then I turned it and I browned the other side for about 10 minutes. And yes, the stove was a greasy mess, but it made the fond and the sauce around the stewed brisket so delicious. And you put in carrots and parsnips and potatoes and red onions and garlic. And I had a cheap bottle of red wine, which I said put it in, which my grandmother never would have used wine. But interestingly, my grandmother also wouldn't have used tomatoes. Um, I know that tomatoes are a controversy. Um, Bruce doesn't put tomatoes well, my in mother Jewish style braised brisket. My mother didn't when I was growing up. My grandmother didn't when I, know, I was growing up. I know. Up. A lot yeah. of people do. It's a big thing. And I put a healthy dollop of orange marmalade, of Bruce's homemade orange marmalade in it. I added lots of allspice and thyme and bay leaves and some, because it's me and I'm from Texas, some red pepper flakes, which his grandmother would never have added. She wouldn't know what they are. Pepper flakes to the brisket. And it was, I have to tell you, there's just the two of us and we did eat on it for three many nights. a meal. <laughs> three nights. Yeah, it, was, yep. it felt like the last night of eating brisket felt a bit like a death march, a frog march across the swamps. <laughs> But um, we did it, and it was very delicious, and I'm glad we did. That's our podcast for this week. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for joining us. If you can rate it and subscribe, that would be great. And download another episode next week and the week after and the week after that, and we will see you back for more on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. <laughs>